Hey, Salt City. My name's Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, thanks so much for being here. I'd love to meet you. Come say hi after the service. Um, yeah, we're glad you're here. All right. Take yourself back to April 2020. I don't know, you might think, Jordan, I don't want to go back there, but take yourself back there for a second. April 2020, the world is crazy. People are fighting over toilet paper. You remember those pictures of New York City where the streets of New York were just empty? Like, I never thought I would see anything like that in my life. It felt like the apocalypse. And there was, you couldn't get away from it. You, social media, every news source, it, everything is about sort of this heavy, weighty, depressing news. And there was no escape until one guy showed up on the scene. This guy right here, John Krasinski, and some good news. And if you were living under a rock and don't know what this is, uh, this is John, also known to some of you as Jim. Um, but he, he started this thing from his house where he would do this news resource where he would just talk about happy things. And it was unbelievable how refreshing it was. The contrast between the news and what he was doing was just amazing. You can, you can take John down. I'm distracted by John. Um, but the contrast between what was happening in the world and the news at the time and, and this good news was incredible. And Man, I, I watch these things like three times a piece. And I remember talking to multiple people who said, I had no idea how much I needed John to bring me some good news. And I felt that same thing. Just this like, for however long those videos were, just this breath of like, I can't handle any more bad news. I need some good news. I've got good news for you this morning. Even better than John's some good news. Even better news than that. And, and it's news from Isaiah 61, and I think it's supposed to create in us that reaction, just that like deep breath of, oh, I had no idea how much I needed that. And, and I think sometimes we do weird things with the Bible. We try so hard to apply it that we're trying to make it useful in these weird ways or, or we're, we're abstracting it and thinking about theology. But here is the point of this text is for you to feel joy. That's what it is supposed to create in you. And like Isaac said, we're in this a series where we're talking about what we do as a church. We celebrate, we connect and we contribute. And so this morning we're talking about celebration, celebratory worship. And the reason why I wanted to go to Isaiah 61, well, there was a number of reasons, but one of them is I love the definition of celebration that you can find in verse 10. Uh, if, you, if you go with me to Isaiah in your Bibles or on your phones, that'd be great. Isaiah uh, is a book kind of towards the middle-ish of scripture. It's a fairly big book. If you're new to the Bible, just kind of flip through, you'll, you'll find it. But Isaiah 61, verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. So the first half of that verse is saying what we should do. We should rejoice. We should exalt. We should celebrate. Why should we celebrate? Because he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's saved you. 
He's brought you from death to life. He's invited you into his kingdom because of everything he's done. He's clothed you with a robe of righteousness, rightness that you didn't have on your own. Jesus put it on you. Do you see what this is saying? It's saying celebrate because of what God has done. That's our definition this morning of celebration. Really simple, but I think important. Celebrating is rejoicing in the Lord because of what he has done. And if you're new to Christianity or maybe new to our church or this type of church, I want to talk to you for a second. Maybe throughout your life, church has been something that you should do, but not something that you want to do. And church has been, you just dreaded it. It was, it was like that for me for a long time. Like you showed up because that's what your family did or you thought you should, but you didn't want to be there. It was like a family reunion where everybody like knew they should want to be there, but actually didn't and were waiting to leave. Like church was like that. Here's what I want you to know. God is not this stingy, depressing being who is a little bit disappointed in you. He is the happiest being in existence. God is joyful. He, he delights in himself. And this is what salvation is, is he's inviting you into his joy. That is one of the primary parts of being a Christian. If you don't know Jesus and you're investigating Christianity, here's the job description of a Christian. Enjoy God as much as humanly possible. If you aren't new to Christianity, if you aren't new to our church, Jesus rose from the dead and someone needs to tell your face. <laughs> like you've forgotten You've forgotten the goodness of following Jesus. You, it, we all do this. I do this, right? Like You're like somebody who gets to eat in the best restaurants in the world every day, and you sort of forget how amazing it is. And you, you just eat this most, the most incredible food, and you're just like, it's, it's fine, this is not, no, it's amazing, it tastes amazing, God is amazing, you need to start tasting the goodness of Jesus again, I want to call you back to your first love, to how incredible this message is that you can know God and that he can know you and you can have relationship with him. But I also want to acknowledge the, the tension that some of you might feel if you pay attention to this text or as you heard it read is that it's so good, it's so amazing, that it's hard to believe that that can be true. And maybe that's not your experience. And this is my tension as I was reading this text this week. I, I believe this to be true. I want to experience it as true. I've had times in my life where I'm experiencing it as true. But just honestly, this has been a stretch where I've been struggling with some depression. And it's hard for me to rejoice. It feels like work to rejoice. It doesn't feel natural for me. And this, this expression of Isaiah 61, of the felt experience of the beauty and goodness of God, feels really far from my lived experience in some ways. And so some of you might be feeling that too, but this is what I want to point out that I've been trying to point out to myself, is that celebrating rejoicing is about celebrating what God has done. Not what you have done and not what you feel. God has done amazing things. Whether or not you feel like that is true, it is true. Your feelings are not reliable. Don't trust them. They'll tell you things that are not true. 
What's true is is that Jesus Christ has offered salvation to anyone who is interested. We're going to talk about that today. And it's the best news in the world. And you have access to relationship with him. And it's worth celebrating. And that work will never be undone. It will stand over history as the centerpiece of history. And nothing will undo that work that Jesus is doing. And so that is worth rejoicing in. It's worth celebrating. And so this is where I want to go today. I want to talk about the messenger, his message, and then what our response should be to that message. The messenger, the message, the response. So first of the messenger. The centerpiece of religious life in ancient Israel who were the people of God was the anticipation of what was known as the Messiah. This messenger coming from God. And this idea of waiting for this person to come was embedded in the collective consciousness of Israel. And this Messiah was this coming hero who was going to make everything in the world right again. So, so little boys and little girls, as they were growing up in Israel wouldn't have been playing like Spider-Man or Superman or dressing up as that for Halloween. They would have been playing Messiah. They, they would have been dreaming of the Messiah coming. Maybe some of the more arrogant ones would have thought that they were him. But they would have been dreaming about this coming hero. Think about the way that prisoners in Nazi concentration camps would have anticipated the allies arriving at that concentration camp. They would have heard the news that the allies were coming and they would have been waiting for that day that they would be liberated. That's the type of anticipation that God's people had for this coming Messiah. They were enslaved and it felt like everything was going wrong for his people and they were waiting for the day that someone would come and make the world right again and make the world the way that it was supposed to be. Now, there was debates about what this Messiah was going to be like or what texts in the Bible talked about him. But the thing that was undeniable was that Isaiah 61, our text for today, was about the Messiah. It was talking about this anointed messenger who was coming to heal the world and coming to tell the world that God was for them, not against them. And so they would read this in in anticipation, but they waited for 700 years after the time of this writing, anticipating the Messiah, never really having this hope fulfilled. And most of Israel had given up hope that this day was actually gonna come, and then Jesus came on the scene. And he shows up, this random carpenter, and he announces his ministry with this dove, the dove of the Holy Spirit coming down on him in his baptism, and people are starting to get excited. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the hero that we've been waiting for. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and nobody can find him. (laughs) Very odd decision-making for your publicity at that point, but he, he goes off into the wilderness, and there's a lot of people that bail, but then he comes back from the wilderness and Luke records that he had this sense of power about him, something different, something was different about this Jesus. And so you can imagine there was these people that, that saw him that would run into their towns declaring him, this is the one we've been waiting for, this is the coming Messiah, but they had done this several times before. They were the boy that called, cried wolf, right? And nobody believed him. 
But there was a few people that out of curiosity came out to see this Jesus in the wilderness and he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. And he's the guest speaker in the synagogue, the equivalent of church. And he's gonna stand up and speak. And he walks up to the front of this packed room with people maybe whispering as he walks up there asking who this person is. And he opens up to Isaiah 61. And he reads this. This is um, the recording from Luke 4 of Jesus reading Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads this familiar text about the coming Messiah and then watch what he does. This is such an awesome move. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can you like feel and hear the silence as they're waiting for him to say something? Verse 21. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying this text about the coming hero who will save and renew the world. It's about me. Everything, all of religious history and all of history in general is about me. Can you imagine what that room was like in that moment? I mean, imagine if some kid from St. Louis Park walked in the back doors, walked up to the front, took my mic, read Revelation, and said, that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and then sat down and said, This is about me. That's the type of vibes we got going here. Okay? And yeah, a lot of the people were probably laughing at him as we would laugh at that person, but there was a few that had seen his life and they knew that he was different and they believed. And Jesus in this moment is saying that all of religious life, everything about God comes through him, that it's about him and it's for him and it's through him as Colossians talks about. In 1989, Tim Berners-Lee, a British software engineer, wrote a paper proposing an information management system. That, that eventually became the architecture for a little thing we call the internet. That was only in 1989. Maybe that feels a long time ago for some of you guys, but it doesn't feel that long ago. But from the moment that he wrote that paper, the world has never been the same. There's just pre-internet world and post-internet world. And even if you, for some reason, didn't want to engage with the internet, you, you can't bury your head in the sand in that. Because all of life has been transformed. You can't engage socially, economically. You can't engage in the world in any way because it's been fundamentally changed by the internet. That is the type of moment that Jesus is having right here, is he's fundamentally changing the world forever. There's just before Jesus, and then there's after Jesus, and everyone has to reckon with him. If you want to say anything that's true about your life or what you should live for, it has to be through him. There's a historian, H.G. Wells, who's an atheist, that said this about Jesus. I'm a, and, and Tony read this at the kickoff, so some of you have heard it, but I wanted to reiterate it. I am a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. 
Uh, go Jesus. Uh, yeah. So here's what Wells understood is that he very clearly, it's undeniable, is the centerpiece of history. But unfortunately, he didn't understand that Jesus was the centerpiece of his life. That's why he was an atheist. Some of you might understand in theory that Jesus was an important person, but he hasn't become the focal point of your life. Some of you are investigating Christianity, or maybe you're kind of trying it on or adding it into your existing life. If Jesus is the centerpiece of all of history, he certainly is not going to be relegated to the outskirts of your life. He will be the centerpiece. That's who he is. You have to deal with that to acknowledge that. Come to him. And as you come to him, that, that power that he has, the, the focus of all of history, he doesn't use that to abuse people. He's not like other leaders and rulers like that. He uses it for the benefit of other people, for your benefit. In fact, he wants to trade you. He wants to trade you for all of your grief and your pain and your sin. He wants to take that on himself and he wants to offer you a new life. Look at verse 3 in Isaiah 61. To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. This is how this works. How can you be a person in this world, this very broken, screwed up, sad world, who doesn't have to engage in the fullness of mourning because Jesus mourned on the cross? He took on ashes so that you could put on the oil of gladness. He became faint of spirit, exhausted and hurting on the cross so that you could put on the garment of praise. He trades you. He uses his power to elevate you, not to harm you. That's the messenger. So what's his message? Look at verses one and two again. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, God is for you. He is not disappointed in you when you come to him. He's not against you if you will trust him. He is for you. He loves you. Okay, so this section, in particular, the year of the Lord's favor, is describing something in the Bible that we tend to miss but would have been a very familiar concept to his initial audience, something called the year of jubilee. So the year of Jubilee was described by God as this festival that his people should follow, and it would happen every 50 years, and essentially it was a year-long Sabbath rest. So they would practice Sabbath, a day where they set aside working to just enjoy God and enjoy his goodness. This was a year of doing that. Okay, forget like a day for Christmas, a year-long celebration. They weren't even supposed to, to harvest. God was going to provide for them in abundance the year before so that they could take a year and just devote it to joy. A year devoted solely to communal joy is the idea of Jubilee. And part of the way this joy came about is this clean restart that, it, that God would give to people. So an Israelite 
culture, if you were in debt, if you were poor, what you would do is you would sell your land to someone. And then from that point, if you still were in debt, you would sell yourself. And so you would become sort of a a family slave. You would offer yourself into that and you would work for this family to pay off your debts and you would lose most of your rights as an Israelite. But in the year of Jubilee, this is what would happen. They would, they would declare Jubilee over the land by the blowing of this like ram's horn, okay? And at that moment when Jubilee started, all of the slaves were set free. And not only were all of the slaves set free, but all of the land was set free. So if you had sold off some of your family land, you could go back and claim it again as your own, no matter how in debt you were. So I want you to picture what this would have been like. There's some debate about whether the Israelites actually followed this, which would have been a real bummer if they didn't. Why wouldn't you? But let's, let's pretend that they did. Picture what this would be like. You would have slaves standing on the porch of the people that have essentially owned them for years, waiting to hear the ram's horn off in the distance. And when they heard it, you can picture they would start running. And two seconds ago, they were slaves, and in a moment, they're free. And they would start running. And I think families would run to meet their families at their family land. And can you imagine what that celebration would have been like? Family seeing each other maybe for the first time in 20 years. You've got dads taking their kids, showing their, their kids their land for the first time ever, teary-eyed. What did they do that night? You better believe they would have thrown the party of all parties. They're for sure cooking meat over a fire. I mean, that's the only logical response, right? They're, they're celebrating. And so you've got these bonfires all over Israel where you would probably hear shouts of celebration as families are reunited and slaves run free. And Jesus, as he's reading this text, in the minds of the initial hearers, they would have been thinking about Jubilee. And here's what Jesus is saying, is I have come to declare an endless Jubilee. Jesus has canceled the debts of the world and set the captives free. And so if you are enslaved to sin, that's the language the Bible uses for the things that we do wrong is that it enslaves us. So we think we're in control of that pet sin, but it's actually in control of us. Jesus has come to set you free. And Jesus has canceled the debts of the entire world so that anyone who wants it can come to him and be free. You don't have to pay for your debts. Jesus took care of all of them. And not only has he canceled all of the debts, but he's creating a new land that we can run home to, to be with him forever. He's declaring a period of joy. We're to be in his kingdom. The only logical thing to do is to celebrate, to rejoice. And this will never end. Look at verse seven. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. The joy of Jesus Christ is eternal and will never end. And he offers you access to it in him. Really, everlasting joy. What's so hard about amazing moments is that you know even in the moment that they're going to end 
This jubilee, this freedom will never end in him. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the ram's horn that declared that the world was free and that all of the world's debts and that your debt could be canceled in him. And so what should our response to that be? Look at verse 10 again. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So it says to rejoice and exalt. Those two words are synonyms. Exalting means to shout in exaltation. God here is commanding loud happiness. I love that. Part of his command on how you should follow him is to be happy, to joy, to engage in rejoicing. One of the primary duties of a Christian in this life and in the next is to enjoy Jesus as much as humanly possible. Why? Because he wants you to have joy, yes, but also because it honors him. Whatever you rejoice in honors the thing that you're rejoicing in as really good. So my aunt and my cousin are like ravenous football fans, okay? Like my cousin had a football-themed wedding. Yeah, so you might ask yourself, how do you have a football-themed wedding? Well, your reception is a tailgate, you wear cleats down the aisle, and you tie rings, the rings, very tightly to a football that gets thrown to the best man who unties them and like gives the rings away. That's how you have a football-themed wedding. And so I was at a tailgate. Yeah, it's awesome. It was next level. Um, so I was at a, a tailgate with them at one point, okay? And the teams drove in on some buses. And it's like, okay, you know, they're tinted windows. It's like the teams are in there. I can't see them. So I give like a little golf clap, right? I turn around. My aunt and my cousin are weeping tears of joy at just seeing the buses. Okay. Who honored that football team more? They did. They enjoyed it more. They thought more highly of that team than I did. They uh, just loved their life. And it honored that football team. Okay, some of you rejoice in Costco. Uh, I have a confession. Church, I, I've, I've never been to Costco. Yeah, see, that reaction tells you how you rejoice in Costco. Audible groans. Here's the thing. I'm not against Costco. It just kind of happened. I just have never been there. I, in general, avoid shopping as much as possible, so I just have never been there. My connection group recently found out that I've never been to Costco, and I got Costco evangelized, and it was a little terrifying because they all were talking at me at once about all the benefits of Costco. And it was just all like coming at me, right? So their rejoicing in Costco honors Costco. If they were just like, yeah, you know, it's whatever, I don't care, I'm probably not gonna get a membership, but now I feel like I have to get a membership or I'm not allowed back in connection group, right? <laughs> what you rejoice in honors that thing. What if we were like that with God? We rejoice in so many like, kind of ridiculous things. What if you reacted to God like that? 
How honored would he be if that was what your life was like towards him? How much would other people want to get in on whatever you have? The only appropriate response to something as amazing as Jesus Christ is joy, rejoicing in him. So I want to quick give you five ways to rejoice or to exalt in God. Number one, confess your sin. That might seem odd. That might not be the way that some of you thought it was going. Here's why I think that will help you rejoice. Is when you're a Christian and you're in sin, it like weighs on your soul. And confessing that sin both to God and to people in your life is not about sitting in shame. It's about saying this is what I did, but it's not who I am. You're reminding yourself that you are a child of God and that that sin doesn't define you and it helps you rejoice. Number two, practice gratitude. Being thankful uh, just kills almost every sin. Think about it. Pride, it's hard to be proud when you're really grateful for the things that God has given you. Self-focus, hard to do that when you're being grateful. Gratitude is part of the way that you acknowledge that God has been good to you and therefore rejoice in him. But notice I said practice gratitude. I literally mean that. Like the way you practice to get better at stuff, practice to get better at gratitude. You can't just say, oh, I want to be grateful to God for the things that I've done. You have to put it into practice. So you need to do things like every day writing down 10 things that you're thankful for or before you go to bed at night thinking back on your day and remembering how good God was to you and thanking him for those things. Number three, stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Quit listening so much to your emotions. They are not reliable. Why do we assume that if we feel it, it's true or if we think it, it's true? Stop listening to what you feel and think and start speaking truth back into what you feel and think. The psalm that Kaylee talked about, Psalm 103, it, the psalmist is doing that. He's, he's commanding his soul to praise God because of what he's done, presumably because he doesn't feel like doing it. And so he's telling his soul what to feel. I raise my hands in worship sometimes because I feel it. Other times I raise my hands in worship because I don't feel it, and I should and so I'm commanding my soul to praise. Slow down and rest. Find things that you enjoy and regularly do them. Some of you are just too busy to be joyful. When's the last time you encountered a super busy, anxious person and just felt loved by them and felt like they were enjoying their life? <laughs> Never. You, so slow, slow down. Like Weed things out of your life to enjoy God on a regular basis. Shoot for a weekly basis. I think that's really helpful. Find things you enjoy and regularly do them. Don't overthink it. Don't try and figure out if it's spiritual or not. Do you, do you like it and is it not sinful? Do that thing. Thank God for it. Verse 5. Or not verse 5. These aren't verses. This is not the Bible. Uh, number, number 5. Come to church and connection group every week expecting God to move. Uh, just consistently attend both church and connection group and it will help you rejoice in God. Celebration in its nature is corporate. So when we talk about celebration, we are talking primarily about the corporate 
celebration that we do together. We're way too individualistic with so many things in our life, including our understanding of celebration. Picture the people in Jubilee. It would have been really weird if their response to being set free was to sit somewhere and quietly meditate to themselves. The response to something like that is to go celebrate with your friends and to talk about how awesome this moment is. That's what we're doing as a church, as Christians. And we have Bible on this, Ephesians 5, 19 through 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is talking about celebratory worship. Who is that worship primarily going towards in this text? Yes, to God, but primarily they're mentioning the worship is going to one another. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Part of worship is you sing at each other to remind each other how good God is and to be stirred up in your love for Jesus. That's the point of this whole thing. It's not to just show up at church. It's to stir one another up and remind each other how good God is and then to enjoy it together. And so make a commitment in your life to be a part of a local body. And I, and I want to talk to you if, if you're watching this online. I, I, that resource is there, and it should be used if you need it, but it, it's not the same as being in person. And so if you haven't been back to church, I want to invite you back if you're able to come. Come be in person. That's what it means to celebrate together, and this applies to connection groups. We don't see connection groups as optional. We see them as essential that's the rhythm of the Acts 2 community. They gathered together for public worship, and then they went into each other's homes to continue the celebration, and so we try to do that same thing. So we respond to this message, this good news, with rejoicing and celebration. What will that response do in us? Well, verse 3, it says that we will become oaks of righteousness, I love that. It's what so many of us are after. By the end of your life, just being this stable, like steadfast, unswaying person who follows Jesus. One of the primary ways you do that, you enjoy God. Enjoying God makes you more like him. But it doesn't just benefit us, it benefits other people. Look at verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. I love that. He's saying our righteousness and praise will grow up in front of people's eyes, and they will see the goodness of God. In other words, your celebration of Jesus Christ is one of the ways that God will reach and transform the world. Because they will see you celebrating God and they will want to be a part of it. People that don't know him will be attracted to him because of your joy in him. You display what you found in him through joy and it makes other people want to be a part of it. That's great news. Let's pray. God, would that be true of our church? Would we so rejoice in who you are that the word would spread and that other people would want to be a part of it? 
And would we become oaks of righteousness? Would you develop into people who are not swayed by our circumstances and, and don't give up on relationship with you when it gets hard, but let us be people who rejoice, who exalt, who, who celebrate you. And, and we can't do that without you. And so would you please, by your spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to be people like this? And thank you, Jesus. Thank you for setting us free. Thanks that the, the shackles are off of our wrist, that we're not slaves anymore, that we don't have to run back to our old masters of, of sin and brokenness, but that we have new life in you. And God, we, we acknowledge that not all of this is true yet, that we're still waiting for heaven, and we don't have access to all of this jubilee yet, but God, we have access to a lot of it in you. And so we don't want to focus on what we don't have yet. We want to focus on what you've given us now, and we want to celebrate it. And so help us to do that even now as we worship together. Let us celebrate. Amen.